Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 43, Russian Doll. Welcome back, everybody, to Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is going to be a fun discussion. February is packed full of great shows. And when Russian Doll showed up in the schedule and we decided we'd try it out for some of our March episodes, once we watched it, we realized we're going to have to move this up in the schedule a little bit. So February is chock full of show topics as a result. Yeah, and I don't know if it's really feast or famine with new shows the way it seems because looking ahead to march there just doesn't seem to be as as much as we've been blessed with in january and february exactly so there's definitely a lot of choices and one thing that i think has to rise to the top of everyone's list is russian doll which we're going to talk about tonight but before we get into that i just want to mention that this is going to be a spoilerific podcast. And that's just because of the nature of the show. It's really a four hour movie because it has eight episodes that are about a half hour each. And it's the most bingeable series I've ever seen on Netflix. You, you sped through it in a couple nights, right? I, I did. And if you guys have been listening to us of late, you, you know, we've sort of agreed to settle into a two episode look at each show we talk about, but that's impossible with Russian Doll. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, we're going to be talking about the Umbrella Academy next week. And I'm starting to find out as the, the more I watch, we already actually recorded that podcast, but you almost could have done it with Umbrella Academy too, with some of the stuff that's happening towards the end. But the idea for the podcast that we're trying to work towards with our new format this year is being appealing to those who haven't seen the show yet so that they can decide if they're going to watch it and for those who have already watched it and want to enjoy a podcast discussion about it. So we're going to institute a spoiler zone, which is a blatant ripoff <laughs> of something that Dave and Wayne do right in sci-fi TV rewatch. Uh, yeah. And if truth be told, I think we've ripped it off from somebody else. I just don't remember <laughs> who. <laughs> right. So the idea is we will clearly delineate. I'll probably even use an audio bumper of some kind to delineate the spoiler zone so that if you haven't watched it yet and you can just go with the discussion at the beginning of the podcast to decide if it's something that sounds like your cup of tea and then spoiler zone will be for those who have seen it and want to hear our reactions and review of what we saw. So that's going to not necessarily mean we're going to talk about more episodes. It might still be we're talking about two or three episodes and then skipping ahead to talk about our impressions that are spoilery. It'll take a different form depending on what show we're talking about. But I just wanted to give people a heads up about that before we dove into our full spoilerific Russian doll discussion. So this is one that was unexpected, Dave. Did you expect when I proposed this as a topic for the podcast that a sci-fi comedy that was nominally 
time travel with its Groundhog Day formula was going to be so epic and amazing. <laughs> no, not at all. And look, I love Amy Poehler and I love Parks and Rec, but when you attach the word comedy to science fiction, you've got to really win me over. And they clearly did here. Yeah, it's funny because we just mentioned that with Felicia Day last week that sci-fi comedy has started to grow on us a bit. And and by the way, if you haven't caught Felicia Day's podcast, I just listened to the first episode today. <laughs> it's pretty good. That she didn't really do it justice in her uh description of it. It's it's pretty zany. So <laughs> that's something from last week. But this one is a different kind of comedy because it's kind of a dark comedy, um, Russian doll. But like Dave said, it does come from the mind of Amy Poehler in addition to its star, Natasha Leone, who also executive produces along with Leslie Headland as well. They've been developing this for many years, and Amy Poehler has that very distinct, more mainstream comedy style. Natasha Leone, I always remember her from American Pie, but she's always been a very irreverent comedian of sorts. So this kind of marries the two together in a metaphysical mishmash, not unlike The Good Place in its way, where you're talking about moral philosophy. You're talking about the nature of existence, which you would think wouldn't lend itself well to a comedy, but it does. Well, yeah, and I'm glad you brought up The Good Place because that, that's a perfect match. And, and as you said, who who would have thought that you could combine existentialism with <laughs> metaphysical and comedy? And yet it's dark as well. And, you know, these days dark seems to be good, you know? Right. And it's almost literary in a sense, too. There's a lot of symbolism, a lot of characters that you're wondering, why are they there? And then they turn out to be sort of a representation of an idea or a concept. But the Russian doll title is even a concept of sorts, because, of course, it does refer to the Russian nesting dolls called Matryoshka that have one woman within another woman within another woman. And that's kind of what's going on here with the repeating timelines of this Groundhog Day loop, which we've seen in television before, but never have it as its core concept. Uh, we've seen like episodes of Dark Matter and some other shows that have that as one of their formulas for an episode, but not for an entire series. But also Russian Doll appears to apply to Nadia Volvokov, which is Natasha Leone's character. She herself is Russian and bright red hair, of course, is too. She's kind of like a mix, as she says, between Andrew Dice Clay and Merida's baby. If they had a love child, this would be this would be it with with Sam Kinison's uh, jacket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did notice that. <laughs> so she's kind of uh, a Bronx girl and, and very thick New York accent, but it's, she's a lot of fun. And this series begins with quite an earworm of a song. Harry Nilsson's Gotta Get Up is playing at Nadia Volvokov's 36th birthday party. And as the uh, Groundhog Day formula gets going, we do hear that song quite a bit. But somehow it never gets old. I actually enjoyed hearing that song come back each time they reset the timeline. Yeah, and I don't know when you want to talk about it, but you know, you you mentioned timelines. So what do we have here? I mean, is it multiple timelines? Is it the multiverse theory? A little of each. Well, it's funny that you said that because I actually wrote an article for Den of Geek specifically talking about the nature of time in Russian Doll. So I encourage people to to check that out on the website. 
It's called Russian Doll Ending Explained, Time Passes All the Same. And I ascribe to a certain uh, multiple timeline theory that we're going to talk about the clues as they show up, because it's definitely something that Nadia has to realize. It's not just a looping timeline like in a video game where you can just start the level over and whatever you did before doesn't matter. And, and I think that's important to note early on. But the initial loop, of course, takes place at her birthday party. It's a milestone, age 36, that Nadia had some trepidation about because her mother never made it to the, that age. Her mother was uh, had some mental issues that caused her to not have a great life, and we get to see a bit of that as the series goes on. But her friends, Lizzie and Maxine, are throwing this party, but Nadia is a very selfish person, and she seems more concerned with hooking up with a random guy and finding her lost cat, Oatmeal, than she does spending time at the party and having fun with her friends. So as she's headed out of the party with this guy to hook up with him, and after they are finished with their lovemaking, she does go out and find the cat and gets hit by a car crossing the street to get the cat. And then she finds herself back at the party earlier that night and realizes quite quickly as the night repeats itself and her hookup leaves in this iteration of the timeline, she realizes she's making new choices that are ending up with new permutations of the evening that she remembers happening. And the obvious question becomes, what's going on here? And I think what's cool about this, similar to the Bill Murray Groundhog Day movie, is that there's a logical progression of investigation of what's going on here. And I, I like the way that she goes through thinking it's the drugs, thinking it's a haunting of the house that the party is taking place in. And it's all stuff that you would probably investigate if you were in this situation. Right. And, and I love when she goes to the rabbi to find some information about the building. The rabbi tells her that buildings aren't haunted. People are haunted. Oh yeah. And that the rabbi's discussion with actually, he says that to her ex boyfriend, John. Oh, you're right. You're right. And, and that rabbi discussion is such a pivotal bit of dialogue that kind of just flies by. And if you're not paying attention to it, you could miss it, but it's, it's on a rewatch when you realize the rabbi's significance. So we'll get to him, but the progression that she goes through before she gets to that Jewish school being haunted idea is she first thinks, okay, is she in early menopause? No, that can't be it. Was it the joint? that Maxine gave her because she mentioned it was laced with cocaine, but she's had cocaine before and this didn't seem like that. So what was it laced with laced with? And actually episode two, where she explores the drug angle is actually what I, I think to be the weakest episode, just because I think it could have turned a lot of people off where they thought that maybe this was going to be a drug addled journey for Nadia and that it was going to get kind of, surreal. Did you think that when you watched this episode? Well, I, not so much that it was going to be about a, a drug-addled journey, as you said, but at this point, she's really an abrasive character, and yeah. for me, by the end of episode two, I wasn't sure whether I really wanted to go on because... You know, I wasn't totally drawn in, but once we get to three, and even though, you know, as you'll say, you know, Alan shows up at the end of the episode, there was something about episode three that really turned it on for me. Probably the uh, rabbi, yeah. <laughs> I would think. Yeah, episode three has her exploring the mystical nature of Maxine's house, which used to be an old Jewish school. And throughout that episode, she seems to give up a bit. She's not really sure that anything is bearing fruit, because certainly... 
the haunting angle didn't really pan out. And she ends up getting her hair cut by a homeless guy who we find out later is named horse. And this is a character we'll have to talk about because what's his significance and why does she think that she's seen him before? Because even after you see the entire series, you go back to that first episode and she says, I think I know that guy. Well, why would she know him if she's in the first loop? Does that make sense, Dave? (laughs) Well, it does. Other than just seeing him in her neighborhood. Yeah, maybe. I guess we start to attach significance sometimes to things like that. But it it was a thing that's a hanging thread that fan theories are being latched onto because Horse is certainly a very symbolic character. But because she hangs out with him, she does freeze to death as one of her many deaths. In episode two, she dies many times falling downstairs, falling into those little uh, elevators that go down under the sidewalk and even falling off of a bridge when she finally finds her cat. So there's all kinds of different ways that she can die, but she keeps coming back to the birthday party and trying something new. And very few aspects of each loop are repeated. And I appreciate that because it could get old very quickly. Even some episodes, I mentioned the Dark Matter episode that had a loop in it, that started to get old after the third or fourth time. You have to mix it up. And Nadia certainly did that where only the very initial parts of the party were repeated but she quickly went out and started doing something new. And the other thing is Bill Murray's Groundhog Day, he repeated the February 2nd over and over again. She can last more than a day, three days at the most, before dying again. So we do get to see longer periods of time sometimes. And I appreciate that that happened in this one. Well, I I do. And one of the ways we see it is that line that Max uses about birthday baby. And as you (laughs) said, it doesn't, repeat a lot but that was sort of the touchstone and then of course the color of her blouse also changes right she actually changes unlike alan at first but um and i appreciate that she learns things from the previous loop that she can use in the next loop such as the password she needs to get into the drug lord's lair in the back of the bar you know she learned that on the previous loop and then was able to use it to her advantage so that's a cool thing for a time travel fan like me but Like you said, everything changes by the end of episode three. They are in an elevator when it starts plummeting to the ground and Alan and Nadia just kind of stand there nonchalantly. And Nadia's like, didn't you hear we're all about to die? Oh, it doesn't matter. I die all the time, he says. (laughs) And can you imagine if this was episodic and you'd had to wait a week to find out (laughs) what was going to happen next? That was where, you know, no one stopped the Netflix queue after episode three no way (laughs) well yeah and you know that's sort of the beauty of the 30 minute episode i mean you certainly have to wait a week with the good place but as you said here oh boy it would have been torture (laughs) yeah well we're going to talk a little bit more about how alan and nadia are similar and how they're different but we're going to take this quick break first and then we'll be right back to talk a little bit more about alan and how he works into the formula So in those first couple episodes, we learned a little bit more about Nadia. But what's interesting is that Alan is a creature of affirmations, having to boost his confidence, and he has his routines. So he repeats a day in which his girlfriend, Beatrice, turns down his proposal, and then he eats cake and plays video games. So 
rather than change anything each time he repeats the loop, he keeps doing it over and over again. And in that sense, I think he thinks that if he does this loop enough times, something will change where he just needs to have his confidence boosted and he'll break through somehow to the ending that he wants. And that's just not how it works. But I, I like that they were able to encapsulate that idea in a single introductory piece for episode four. Yeah, I mean, they really are a study in contrast. And, and the video game metaphor, I think, is fascinating, especially given that she designs video games for a job in her life. Yeah, that's no mistake. <laughs> Very deliberate choice there. But as soon as she disrupts his pattern, he finds out that the affair was with Mike, who he and his girlfriend refer to as the gingerbread man, but also happens to be the same man that Nadia hooked up with in episode one. But the next theory on Nadia's list is that, okay, they must be two sides of the same person. Whereas Alan thinks they're in purgatory and they just need to somehow get something right to earn their way out of purgatory. So while testing his theory, I think it's interesting that she realizes that she has been unfair to her ex boyfriend, John, who really wanted to marry her, I believe. And who helped her with the investigation with the rabbi to find out if the school was haunted. And so she decides to meet his daughter with a copy of Emily of new moon, which by the way, that book, which is written by the same author they mention as Anne of green Gables. You could do a whole article on den of geek, just analyzing why she chose that particular book. If you're familiar with it at all, we're not going to get into it here, but I mean, geez, anytime you see a book, Remember, even in Lost, Dave, you had to pay attention. That book was not meaningless. <laughs> oh, of course. I'm sure a lot of the fans of the show scrambled to their computers to look that book up on Wikipedia. <laughs> and as you said, it's yeah, I mean, it really ties in. Right. So this trip to the rabbi, I want to take a little detour to that because that's very important. Like I said, the rabbi tells John after he's asking about the yeshiva that there's some wisdom that's inaccessible to the intellect. You can only reach that wisdom through surrender. And if you think about it, after watching all eight episodes, you realize that's the mission right there. They have to achieve a certain amount of wisdom beyond the tragedy that they've experienced in their lives. And the only way they're going to do it is through surrender. And he, another way that rabbi puts it is you're trying to avoid the abyss, but embracing the abyss is the only way forward. And if you think about it, he's not just talking to John and his relationship with Nadia. He's talking to the audience and giving them the answer to what Alan and Nadia are trying to do. And I think that's brilliant. And a lot of people who have written articles on this series bring up the rabbi because of that. Well, yeah. And you said about the two conflicting characters, order versus disorder in their respective lives and trying to really come to grips with the demons that haunt each of them. But as you said, embracing certain aspects, and it does get to be as simple as helping someone else, which ultimately helps that person. Right. Well, that's what's interesting, too, is that I think Alan goes through a very logical choice of a change that he has to make. But Nadia's transformation has a lot to do with her feelings towards her mother, who just wasn't a great mother, was kind of crazy and didn't take good care of her, neglected her in a lot of ways. And she's got some pain because of that. She feels guilt over 
basically choosing to go with her aunt Ruth eventually child protective services took her away from her mother and then her mother died a year after that and she feels a lot of guilt over that but what's interesting is that john who we just mentioned seems to be the path to healing for nadia because it's not until she gives that copy of emily of new moon to john's daughter lucy that the shard of the mirror which is very symbolic of the pain she experienced with her mother who broke all the mirrors in the house one time is healed. That's how she achieves the healing is to give the book to Lucy. And I'm still not done analyzing that bit. I I haven't quite understood why that was the turning point for Nadia, but it still was a beautiful moment, regardless of whether we fully comprehend it. Yeah. Right. The scene, uh, she's in a restaurant, right? And and, yeah. 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 And starts to bleed from the mouth. And then next thing you know, she's expunging that broken shard of glass. And it's horrifying on the one hand, but really it's a beautifully powerful moment when it happens. Because as you said, we don't understand exactly the meaning of what we're seeing, but but we kind of do. Yeah, we get that the mirror represents the pain that she's held inside of her because of what happened with her mother. So John becomes an interesting character because of that, as does Lucy. But the other two characters that I felt were largely symbolic, like I said, were Horse, the homeless man who Nadia thinks she's met before even all this started to happen. He was caught up with a tech startup of some kind, something about cryptocurrency. I'm not sure his backstory is all that important. He's obsessed with giving haircuts, which seems to be a symbol for sort of shedding an old version of yourself. And he helps Nadia do that in a certain way, but he's also part of that parade at the end that transforms everything for Alan and Nadia, which we'll talk about, of course. But because of that, to me, he seems to represent either complete denial. So just come with me and forget your problems or totally embracing the chaos as he does in the parade at the end of the series, or maybe he represents both of those things. I'm not sure. All right. And it's fascinating because early on we have to wonder why she lets him cut her hair. Yeah. And and in that same sequence, she, she won't sleep with John at that point, but yet she sleeps with horse on the street. and, And of course ends up freezing to death and, you know, restarting the whole loop. But also like she actually guards his, shoes for an entire night yeah what a scene right in the middle of the investigation (laughs) yeah so it's like why do that so i think there's a lot of symbolic reasoning behind her interactions with horse and again you can only really scratch the surface of some of this stuff and then there's mike who also seems to be kind of an archetype of sorts he's a sleazy professor who hooks up with just about anybody but mostly his own younger grad students like beatrice alan's desired fiance but Mike says to uh, Alan when Alan is trying to figure out why his girlfriend went with this sleazy guy, why did she choose you instead of me? But it's not that she chose him instead of Alan. It's because he represents the whole where a choice should be. She was just choosing anything other than Alan. She wasn't specifically choosing Mike. (laughs) So to me, that means he represents randomness ruling your life rather than making conscious choices. And the universe seems to be telling Alan, at least that you need to make choices. You can't just let whatever random woman enters your life suddenly become your everything because that's not necessarily what he needed or even wanted. He just thought that's what he needed to do to be successful is uh, get married. So 
a lot of personal journeys of discovery and exploration and learning that need to take place. Well, yeah. And, you know, seeing that in Alan is so unexpected given everything we see from those scenes when he unpacks from the business trip compared to the life we see with Nadia. Although, given what she does for a job, programming software games like that that's a very ordered existence that's right and in fact nadia being a software engineer is kind of telling because she made a game that can only be completed alone and that frustrates alan he's like you made this game that i cannot finish because you can't get any help from other players or even the non-player characters in the game and she's like well yeah you need to do things by yourself because that's how nadia lives her life she doesn't want to be dependent on anyone because she couldn't count on her mother. I mean, it's an obvious parallel. Well, she even tells him our lives depend on each other. She's figured out my worst nightmare. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think even Farhan, Alan's friend that runs the deli, says no one can do everything by themselves. So, you know, you get this theme permeating the entire series. But the question becomes, why are these two people linked? Uh, and the only thing I can think of is, that they seem to be opposites in every way. So maybe they're supposed to represent the two selves within us all, our light side and our dark side, our, our ordered side and our chaotic side. Do you think that's a good theory as to why it's these two in particular? Well, I do. His mother's a doctor. Her mother's mentally ill and, and essentially oh. leaves her to be raised by somebody else. Yeah, I, like I, yeah. I think we definitely have to look at it that way as, as one possibility. That's the thing. And I think that Amy Poehler and Natasha Leone and all the rest of the people that are responsible for creating this craziness want to leave it up to our imagination. They want to have people interpret it the way they see it. So if you're wondering, why does oatmeal, the cat, come into play? Why does oatmeal disappear on the bridge? Why does the fish disappear? Why does Alan's engagement ring disappear? And why does eventually everything disappear when they're not being successful on their mission? Because that kind of implies that the universe has placed some kind of time limit or loop limit on this journey of awakening. So why does the universe care? And who is it that's starting them in, on this journey? Or what is it that's starting them on this journey? It's really nothing. It's just a representation of a journey that we all go through in our minds, right? Well, yeah. And the other thing that is sort of maddening is that certainly on a rewatch, when we get to that point, we know she and Alan are getting closer to the truth. Yet that's when all the people are disappearing. That's also when her child self first appears. Right. Because she's getting closer and then the, the old wounds are opening up, I think. Yeah. But you mentioned time loops, multiple timelines. I think the big moment of awakening for Nadia. She's very cavalier about the loops. She even says to Alan one time when she starts messing up his carefully ordered bookshelves, don't worry about it, dude. They're, it's just going to reset anyway when we die <laughs> next time. But once she blows up in a gas leak inside her Aunt Ruth's house when she's making tea, and then when she goes back after that death loop to try and prevent the gas leak and call the utility service, Aunt Ruth shoots her thinking Nadia is a burglar. And they even set that up. Aunt Ruth repeatedly says to Nadia, lock the door behind you. There's, there's a burglar in the neighborhood. So, you know, they took close care to make that a logical sequence. And Nadia suddenly realizes there might be a timeline 
a reality in which Aunt Ruth has to deal with the guilt of having shot me thinking I was a burglar. Am I okay with that? And she's clearly not. Right. And the other thing that, again, I always defer to you on time travel stuff. She seems to also imply that these timelines are accessible from varying points so that you could go back to the beginning, if you will, to relive a mistake you may have made in that timeline. Well, I think that's what they're doing. They're trying to find the mistake. So I don't think she's meaning literally going back (laughs) along the timeline, but specifically doing something symbolic like what she did with the book and Lucy to fix something from back then. But do these loops still exist with the consequences for them dying left behind for those? That's what causes her to skip out on the breakfast with John and Lucy in the first place. She doesn't want to get a relationship going with Lucy only to have this lady that she just met die in some horrible way. So she starts to realize that something's going on. And then the idea of these loops existing, not necessarily side by side in parallel, but think of like your Christmas lights that instead of being strung in parallel are strung in series. And I feel like that's what these loops are doing. And the reason I say series is because time for them, subjective time for Nadia and Alan still passes. They see, you know, this loop happened, then this loop happened, then this loop happened. And it appears that the fruit and the flowers also experience time from their subjective viewpoint. Because all the moldy fruit, the wilted flowers, they can see that, but no one else seems to notice that there's a bunch of moldy fruit lying around. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to bring up. (laughs) So I like the way that they've structured, because I don't think I've ever seen that particular way of depicting multiple timelines. I thought it was very clever. But once they realized that Alan's first death was a suicide, because I think in his repeated loops, he just kind of forgot how that first one happened, especially since he was quite drunk. So you can forgive him for for forgetting that. That's when they realize they need to fix it in order to break out of this loop. And I think it's brilliant to realize that they have to experience that on their own. So they actually separate in order to solve these problems And the real surprise of the series besides the ending is the fact that when they finally do succeed in fixing their past that has caused them pain, they wake up in a timeline in which the other person no longer knows them, has reset to the beginning of their loops, as it were. And then they have to help each other separately in different timelines, avoid death, avoid Alan's suicide and avoid Nadia getting hit by a taxi. So that was unexpected. I was definitely not thinking that they were going to have to exist separately from each other. But that was the last element that really proved it, that these timelines do exist separately from each other. They're not just resetting like a video game. Right. And just the fact that the timelines merge and we get that scene where, you know, the two Nadias basically walk towards each other without seemingly any recognition of the other. But. Right. And that's the thing. When they finally realize that they've succeeded, not only in their own mission, but also helping the other person avoid their initial death, then you think, okay, well, that's great. So our new Nadia has helped suicidal Alan and our new Alan has helped our selfish Nadia. But they still have that whole personal journey to go through again. But that's why that ending scene is so important, because they both go through the tunnel where the parade is happening. And when the two Nadia's pass by, 
you see that it's our Alan and our Nadia that are now walking side by side because Alan has that distinctive red karma infused scarf around his neck. And Nadia has on the white pirate blouse that she got from Maxine. Once Maxine threw a drink on her, (laughs) which was a great scene signature black blouse. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, Certainly, as you said, there's just so much symbolism. We could talk for hours about it, but, but the one, as we get to the end, she gives, the Krugerrand necklace to horse. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, after he says, is it real gold? And she says, yes. And he's like, why? And she says, because it's too heavy. Yes. And you know, the, the weight of the guilt of what she perceives she did to her mother. And look, on the one hand, I think it would be very superficial to just say that his problems really arise from being rejected by Beatrice, while hers go back to yeah. this childhood, which was just horrific. And how can you really compare the two? But I think what we learn is that Alan's demons go a lot deeper than just his relationship with Beatrice. We just don't get to see that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's just the manifestation of it. Yeah. But yeah, that ending, I think, is what really just cinched it for a lot of people. Perfect ending because it's so open to interpretation. They could have easily had two Allens walking by along with the two Nadias. They could have had one Nadia pass by the other, and that would have made it seem like both timelines were existing together. But the fact that it's two Nadias that passed by our Nadia really lends credence to that multiple timeline theory that all the different mistakes that they've made have now merged and they can go on with their lives having fixed or at least accepted what happened to them and embraced the abyss as the rabbi said. So just a brilliant ending to a brilliant series. That would be Nadia prime as it were. (laughs) Yes. Oh, now don't don't uh, make me feel bad about the cancellation of counterpart. I know, (laughs) but yeah, there's a lot of great shows out there that deal with (laughs) multiple timelines, parallel universes, but actually what do we have next week that actually also sort of follows a bit at least of the pattern that we saw in Russian doll. Well, we're going to talk about the umbrella Academy, which is again, one of these shows that I really knew nothing about until you brought it to my attention and dude, I'm loving it. Yeah. And I I mentioned that the similarity there is that one of the superpowers that we'll be discussing is time travel. And you know, I was totally there for that. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. And a superpower. That's not really a superpower. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Nice tease there. And in fact, because we have already recorded this particular discussion, I can tease that we actually got a surprise guest that's connected to the show to come on our podcast. And it was kind of an unexpected occurrence. So I think you'll really enjoy that discussion if you're enjoying the Umbrella Academy, which is also on Netflix. So if you watched Russian Doll, you can also just skip right on over to that one as well. But that's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. And be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.